We're going to look at Acts chapters 25 and 26 today, and I want you to skip almost all the way to the end of chapter 26, and we're going to read verses 28 and 29 right away. Acts 26, 28 says, And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. I read the end two verses first because I want you to see right away what these two chapters are driving at. Uh, You might remember it's not been too long, uh, two and a half years or so, that Paul finished his third missionary journey, went on to Jerusalem, was only there maybe five or six days before he was arrested, uh, thrown out of the temple, and a mob tried to uh, violently beat him to death before the Roman centurions came and rescued him. They were about to flog him. Paul addressed the crowd. Uh, Then he went to a second Jerusalem council to defend himself. Uh, Then he defended himself, which was the topic we covered last week before Felix. That was the third one. And today, these are the fourth and fifth defenses of Paul's faith. And these uh, fourth and fifth defenses, he is uh, declaring his case before the Roman governing officials and the Jewish authorities. And yet at the same time, uh, you can see throughout these five defenses that Paul's motivation is not to get himself out of death. It's not to become free. Uh, He's not bribing Felix like he said so that he could have his freedom back. We can see from just in these two verses, Paul's goal is to persuade them to faith in Jesus. That's his main motivation, is that those who hear him would hear the gospel, that they would understand that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died on the cross for their sins, and that he offers life and redemption and forgiveness and grace to those who would receive him, to those who would repent of their sins and believe in him. This is Paul's main passion. And he's written about this evangelistic responsibility in a couple of other places. Uh, you, can, you don't have to turn there. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he wrote, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Again, in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20, he tells them, We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Jesus, be reconciled to God. This was Paul's motivation in Corinth. This was Paul's motivation in Ephesus. This was Paul's motivation in uh, Galatian churches and Philippi and Thessalonica. Everywhere he went, he had this desire in mind that he would be able to proclaim the gospel. Uh, they told him in Ephesus, don't go into the... Don't go into the crowd, right? There's a mob there and they're ready to kill you. But his main desire was, if I have a crowd and I have the opportunity, I want to proclaim to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wrote in 2 Corinthians 6.2 that, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Uh, 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he wrote, Even though I'm free from all, I have made myself a servant to all so that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, even though I'm not myself under the law, so that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. To the weak, I became weak so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. And in many other passages in Paul's epistles, he's written of this evangelistic fervor and this evangelistic motivation and this desire to be pleasing to Jesus and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even when Paul was first saved, arrested on the road to Damascus and brought into Damascus blinded, in his testimonies he has said that Jesus would send him out to be a light to the Gentiles and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you can see in Paul's writings... Not just his writings, but in an example that his goal is to present the gospel by all means necessary to persuade unbelievers to become believers. And this desire that Paul has, uh, this uh, driving passion for his life that we're reading about today in Acts 25 and 26, it directly fulfills Jesus' prophetic words in Luke chapter 21. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus, is, his disciples, they're walking through Jerusalem and they say, Lord Jesus, look at these buildings and the stones. And, and Jesus said, do you see these buildings? There will come a day when there will not be one stone left upon another. And that piqued their curiosity and they said, well, tell us when these things are going to take place. And so uh, Jesus began to prophesy about the end times. There will be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and pestilence and, and all these things. And then in verse Um, 12 of Luke 21, he says, but before all this, that is before the end times happen, up until that time, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and to prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And this will be your opportunity to bear witness Jesus continued, he said, settle it therefore in your minds, uh, not to worry beforehand how you should answer. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Jesus had prophesied that his followers, his disciples, would be persecuted and would be um, mistreated and would be arrested and that they would be brought before governors and kings to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in these two chapters that we're reading today, Paul is given words and wisdom that none of his adversaries are able to resist or contradict. He is bearing witness and fulfilling the prophetic words of Jesus. His driving ambition to share the gospel is remarkable. But I, I, I think I'm more amazed at this in light of his circumstances. You see, sometimes we share the gospel or we are anxious to tell people about Jesus when things are going well for us. And, and you might see this, um, you know, after somebody scores a touchdown or something great happens to someone and they say, you know, to God be the glory and I thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but... But you very rarely see this when someone's circumstances are really, really low, that they're ready to give their life to Jesus. 
Paul, his ambition to share the gospel and to make Jesus known is in spite of his circumstances and his afflictions and his trial rather than as a result of it. Do you understand what I mean? He is trying to glorify Jesus through the proclamation of the gospel at great cost to himself. And we can learn from this today. Because we can share in Paul's ambition to fulfill Jesus' command to proclaim the gospel and to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that he commanded us. The more I looked at this passage, uh, I, I think I was staggered a little bit by Paul's commitment to share the gospel in light of what he could have been passionate about. Paul could have been passionate about defending himself. He could have been passionate to clear his name, right? Somebody slanders you or says something negative about you. Your first instinct is to react and to defend your name or to clear your name. Paul's not passionate about defending himself. Matter of fact, in this chapter that we're going to read, he says, I don't, I don't mind death. I'm not trying to escape the death penalty if I deserve it. My desire is to share the gospel. Uh, he's not passionate about avoiding the death penalty. There are so many things that Paul could have been passionate about, but he is telling his uh, persecutors and captors about the grace of God available through Jesus. And it's remarkable to me when you consider all that he's been through. We're, we're going to read through uh, chapters 25 and 26, and I'm not going to preach a lot as much as just make a couple of observations and fill in some gaps along the way. And so if you uh, can turn back, uh, we'll get a running start in chapter 24, verse 27. In 24, verse 27, uh, we see the shifting of an administration. Felix, he was the dominant person in last week's sermon. I said I'd never mention his name again, right? I said Felix so many times last week, uh, and here I am again already. Um, Felix was so brutal and violent and corrupt that the new emperor that replaced Claudius in Rome, uh, a guy named Nero, uh, he recalled uh, Felix because he was so violent and brutal, and he replaced him with a new guy. And so this is the changing over. But Felix, on his way out, chapter 24, verse 27 says that Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Remember, he had kept him around for two years in his own palace, and Felix had access to Paul 24-7. And I asked you last week, what if Paul was um, living in your house for two years and you had complete access to his mind and to his knowledge and to him as a prayer partner? And as, you know, what if you had that kind of access? And yet, in the end, Felix kept Paul in prison. He hoped to gain money from him, but when Paul never bribed him for his freedom, uh, as a political favor to the Jewish authorities, Felix just left Paul in jail. Felix used him as a means of gaining political favor. And, and, and I'm going to speculate a little bit here, but, but I think for Paul to have been imprisoned for a longer period of time than maybe he thought it was over two and a half years ago that Jesus had promised him, just as you bore witness to me here in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness to me in Rome. 
But two years is a long time to be stuck in prison. And with the changing over of an administration and everyone vacating that uh, praetorium in Caesarea and a new group of people coming in, and Paul still in his same uh, situation, it led me to ask this question, have you ever experienced a potentially faith-shattering trial? Have you ever gone through something that despite friends and loved ones maybe coming to you and, and offering you encouragement, um, one of those things that, uh, you know, thoughts and prayers from others just weren't going to cut it to get you through this particular trial? I don't necessarily mean that your faith was derailed at any time. I just mean that the trial was significant enough, it was painful enough, it was real enough, that you had to maybe go out and have one of those um, serious prayer evaluation times when you asked, Lord, are you real? Uh, Is this, are you really here? Are you really able to save me from these circumstances or from the situation that I'm in? Maybe one of those times when you wrestled with God just like Jacob did and you had to ask yourself or had to pray something like this, Lord, if you don't show up, I don't know how I'm going to make it through this particular period. Listen, I'm only speculating. Paul seems to be, if I read the circumstances in this situation right, Paul seems to be in one of these places. He could have lost faith. He could have been crushed under the weight of this trial with this new administration coming and he's left alone in prison. He's holding on to a promise from Jesus that um, he would be uh, testifying about him in Rome, but that was over 730 days of prison time ago. The truth is that trials come along for all of us. James tells us that we should take joy whenever we face trials of many kinds because it does something in us, right? You face a serious trial, one that could derail your faith if you don't press into Jesus and it reveals your shortcomings and your weaknesses. It reveals maybe vices. It reveals other things about your character. But in every way, trials can either reveal your lack of faith or they can strengthen your faith. I think what we see here in Paul's life is that he is not at all crushed by the weight of the circumstances that he's going through. He presses deeper into Jesus, even further, growing closer to the Lord rather than withdrawing. Five defenses over a period, public defenses, five opportunities for him to declare the gospel publicly over a period of 730 days or more. And each time he steps up to the plate, And he delivers a gospel presentation in spite of his circumstances. And this last one might even be the strongest gospel proclamation. We're going to read it in just a minute. But for now, let's get back into the text, and we're just going to kind of quickly scan through it. In chapter 25, verse 1, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. 
it's just my opinion, but uh, I think Festus is a rather unfortunate name. Uh, no offense if anyone here is named Festus. Um, but this is a new guy, and he's coming into an, a new administration in a new region. His full name is Portius Festus, and he was appointed the governor between 55 and 60, if you're looking for a timeline. He succeeded Felix, and a few years later, he, he passes away, and a guy named Albinus comes in. But from the text, from these two chapters, and all we know about Festus, is he seems like a, a sort of a moderate guy compared to Felix. He's reasonable, he is uh, dutiful. Uh, within three days of arriving on the scene, he goes straight to Jerusalem and he spends a few weeks there and he's getting to know the territory and he's getting to know the political power players. And from the text, he seems to be a lot um, uh, less violent than Felix, uh, a lot less volatile. And it seems like he has some street smarts. Uh, look at verse 2. Uh, the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews... Uh, just immediately when Festus arrives, they lay out their case against Paul and they urged him, asking a favor against Paul that, that he summon Paul to Jerusalem because they're planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Our two years of Paul in prison did not um, cause their anger against him to subside. They're holding this grudge. I don't know if you've ever had a grudge or if you've ever held a grudge and you see somebody that you held a grudge against and, and immediately when you see them, right, all these, the, it doesn't take long for the fires to blaze up a little bit, right? This is, this is what's taking place. This guy's only been on the job for a few days and they're already planning an ambush to kill Paul. Uh, forget about the new guy. Let's just kill Paul on the way and, and they don't really give Festus much of a chance. But Festus has some street smarts. He, he sniffs it out. This doesn't seem like his first rodeo. Look at what happens in verse 4. He doesn't give in. Festus replied, Paul's being kept at Caesarea. And he said, I, he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down there with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. All right, so, okay, good for Festus, right? Uh, this isn't his first time to do this. Uh, he's new, but he has enough experience and counsel to maybe sniff out this trap, or maybe uh, Felix left some detailed notes that, uh, hey, they tried to assassinate him once, and they may try to assassinate him again, uh, and, and you might not be able to trust these people in authority. And so he basically says, you want Paul? You can come to my place, and you can see him on my home turf, but not the other way around. Verse 6, after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took a seat on the tribunal, and he ordered Paul to be brought. And when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. And so Paul stood up and argued in his defense. This is the shortest and the most to-the-point defense that Paul gives. Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Right? One sentence, one line, Paul is defending himself. Uh, and then verse 9 tells us, But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? So Festus can clearly see that there's a personal vendetta against Paul. And yet Paul's a Roman citizen, and he still has rights. And so Festus is trying to navigate this political tightrope. 
that he's found himself in. He sees a political play. He can keep Paul or he can deliver him to Jerusalem, which is what the Jewish authorities want. And so he can either win some points there. So Paul uh, sees this predicament as well. And then he forces Festus's hand. And he forces Festus to make a decision. Decide my case right now or send me to Rome. Verse 10 says it this way. But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and I have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I don't seek to escape death. But if there is nothing about their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. This is maybe the first light of hope that Paul has had, where Jesus had promised him, you're going to go to Rome and you're going to testify about me there. And so now he's made his appeal, and so now he's able to go to Rome. This is the equivalent of a city trial being escalated to a county trial, being escalated to a state Supreme Court case that is finally escalated all the way to the Supreme Court in our country. This is the process that Paul has done. He was accused in Jerusalem, went before the Jerusalem Council, went before the council in Caesarea, and then now he's appealed to what we would think of as the Supreme Court to go all the way to the emperor. Paul's case, by the way, is gaining national and even international attention. Uh, These people know about him, and they've held this grudge against him, and it's you're hearing the language being escalated. All the Jews want him dead. Verse 13, he's going, uh, Festus is going to include a, a new party. When some days had passed, uh, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea, and they greeted Festus. So who are Agrippa and Bernice? Well, they're married, um, and they're related, and we'll just kind of leave it at that. Mm. Our commentary informs us that um, although there are several different Herods mentioned in the New Testament, um, all of them are members of one large political family that started way back with a guy named Herod the Great. They were rulers appointed uh, by Rome to be these sort of puppet kings over this area. This particular Herod, his name is Herod Agrippa II, he sees that these tensions are rising between Rome and the Jews, and ultimately, eventually, though he is the king ruling over the Jews, he will side with Rome, and then he will be exiled when the temple is destroyed. Verse 14, uh, they stayed there for many days, And then Festus laid Paul's case before King Agrippa, and he said, there's a man left prisoner by Felix. Verse 15, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day I took my seat on the tribunal and I ordered the man to be brought. And when the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I had supposed. 
Now, just a footnote here. You'll remember when Paul was arrested, the Roman guard said, are you the assassin who led the 4,000 other assassins out into the wilderness? That's probably what Festus was thinking. This guy must be the leader of a million assassins, right, that are trying to kill all these Roman people. And then instead, when he interviews Paul and when he hears their case against Paul, it's not at all what he thought it would be. So verse 20, um, uh, verse 19, I mean, um, it's not the evils that I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss at how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, Festus said, you will hear him. Verse 23, so on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And has he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, says to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Verse 2, this is the fifth and final defense that Paul will make that's recorded in the book of Acts. And he says this, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. This may be the biggest understatement here when Paul tells Agrippa that he is familiar with the controversies uh, and customs of the Jews. Herod Agrippa II, who Paul is before, was almost certainly familiar with Jesus, was almost certainly familiar with John the Baptist, with James who was killed, and possibly had followed Jesus and the movement of the church and the resurrection since the very beginning. So so let's just take a second and get all of our Herods in line, okay? You know there's a lot of them, right? The, the godfather of the entire Herod clan was a man named Herod the Great. Uh, he had a nickname, the Butcher and the Builder. This was uh, the king who was in power before Jesus was ever born. Herod the Great, uh, you remember when Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it back up again. And the Pharisees answered him and they said, it took 46 years for us to build this temple and you will tear it down. Herod had rebuilt the temple and he had rebuilt it and it took him 46 years to rebuild the entire temple. 
Uh, he built all these incredible cities. He built Caesarea. Built Caesarea. He built his own palace uh, just outside of Bethlehem. Um, Herod was an incredible builder. Many of his ruins still stand today. You can go and see things that Herod built. But he was also called the butcher because he was ruthless in protecting his kingdom. The only thing you need to be reminded of is that when he heard from the three wise, or not the three wise men, but when he heard from the magi that a king of Israel had been born, how did he respond? He said, I want you to tell me where he's been born. And he went and found out. And, he, and, and when the wise men didn't come back and report to him, what did he do? He had every single baby boy killed in the Bethlehem greater area, two years old and under, just to cover his bases. He was a wicked, terrible person. Jesus and his family, Mary and Joseph, took him to Egypt. And and what allowed them to come back from Egypt? They heard that Herod had died, right? That's Herod the Great. That's our first Herod. Uh, he had other children, and two of his sons ruled. One was um, Herod Antipas. He ruled during the ministry of John the Baptist. He's the one whose um, daughter-in-law Salome came and danced, and um, he told him, you know, man, that was great. Whatever you want, I'll give you. And she went and asked her mom, what should I ask for? And she said, bring me the head of John the Baptist on a platter, right? This is that Herod. Uh, you know, the son of Herod the Great has John the Baptist beheaded. Uh, he's also the one who sat in judgment at one of Jesus' trials. Um, Herod, his, the next one is Herod Agrippa I. He was king of Judea for a few years, and he's the one that we read about in Acts that had James the apostle, uh, the brother of John, executed. And his death is recorded in Acts chapter 12. Remember, he gave this great speech, and everybody said, what a great speech! And he didn't give glory to God, and so the text says that he was um, afflicted right then and there, and he was eaten by by worms, and he died, right? The um, Interesting picture there. This Herod that Paul is in front of in our chapter, in chapter 25 and 26, he was only 17 when Herod Agrippa I died, when he was eaten by worms. Um, he was uh, given this reign by Emperor Claudius, and, uh, and now he's the king. So when I'm, if I'm Paul, and I know all this, Herod the Great, and Herod Agrippa, and Herod uh, Antipas, and all the other Herods, and their history with Jesus, and their history with John the Baptist, and their history with James, and their, their incredible persecution that broke out in the early chapters, I'm, I might be a little bit worried, but Paul goes back and he says, I consider myself fortunate to be able to speak to you, King Agrippa. Doesn't that help to know the context a little bit? He says, I I think that it's a wonderful thing that I'm standing before you and I'm making my defense because you know all of these things. This Herodian dynasty had a long history with Jesus and his followers and they have been inflicting violence and destruction and evil on Jesus and his followers. Killing, tried to kill baby Jesus, beheaded John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, presided over Jesus' one of his three trials on the day of his crucifixion, killed James, and now this Herod will decide Paul's fate. And Paul says, it's, it's wonderful that I'm here before you. I know that none of these things have escaped your notice. 
And in verse 4, he says, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation, that is in Tarsus, and also in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And this is the hope for which I'm accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So in his defense, he beelines straight for the resurrection. And that's the the main point that he has used in the last three of his defenses. Jesus has been risen from the dead, and I proclaim this hope to all of you. And in verse 9, he continues to give some of the backstory. I, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And so I did in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from these chief priests, but when they were put to death, I even cast my vote against them. He's referring to Stephen in Acts chapter 6. Verse 11, he says, I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. In raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And it was in this connection that I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. And at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Listen, you can't read that paragraph and not hear gospel overtones here and there. He's talking about the risen Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. He's talking about the sanctifying power. He's talking about the grace and forgiveness and the the light from the darkness of the Gentiles. He's, He's talking about all of these things which are all gospel themes. Paul is, if he had an axe and Agrippa was a tree, he is swinging as hard as he can using every gospel terminology he can because he knows that Agrippa is well aware of all these things. He continues, verse 19, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to that heavenly vision, but I declared the gospel, first of all, to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and then in all the region of Judea and then also to the Gentiles, talking about his first, second, and third missionary journeys, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. But to this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here today testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Jesus must suffer, that being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Now listen, you can see that in the crowd, Paul is swinging with everything he has 
in his defense toward King Agrippa. But listen to Festus. First few weeks on the job, right? Doesn't know anything about the Jews and the controversies and the gospel and Jesus. And so Festus blurts out, verse 24, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. He's the only one who reacts that way, by the way. Verse 25, but Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking true and rational words, for the king knows all about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In such a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. At the end of the passage, the king arose Verse 30, and the governor and Bernice and all those who were sitting with them. And, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man has done nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said he could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. You see the favor that God has given him? Herod Agrippa makes this statement. Would you try to convert me in such a short time? You could tell that Paul was really laying it on thick with this gospel, trying to share the gospel with Agrippa. This is his enemy, the enemy to Jesus, the enemy to the gospel, the enemy to the church, and yet Paul's love for Jesus and proclaiming the gospel to him. There's a a translation in the older King James Version that says, King Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Lots of sermons over the years have been preached about the one who almost became a Christian. Uh, It was even uh, given into a hymn called Almost Persuaded, uh, written in 1871, and it says, Almost persuaded now to believe, almost persuaded Christ to receive. Seems now some soul to say, Go spirit, go thy own way. Some more convenient day on thee I will call. Almost persuaded, Come, come today, almost persuaded, don't turn away. Jesus invites you here, angels are lingering near. Prayers rise from hearts so dear. Oh, wanderer, come, almost persuaded, but the harvest is past. Almost persuaded, doom comes at last. Almost cannot avail. Almost is but to fail. Sad, sad, that bitter wail, almost but lost. The sentiments that that hymn expresses are noble. One commentary writes, and certainly the Bible warns that today is the day of salvation. However, the sermon and the songs that are based on that translation don't capture what Agrippa actually said. There is no hint in Acts 25 that Agrippa was ever seriously considering becoming a Christian. In fact, The most accurate translation says, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Agrippa fully understood what Paul was trying to do, and he basically tells us it's not going to happen. I'm not going to believe. And the rest of his life proves that out. Paul, in the midst of his circumstances, gave it his all. 
I mean, he really shared the gospel, proclaimed the gospel to his enemy. In all these ways, Paul encourages us today, I think we can apply this, that we should be active in sharing our faith. See, you don't have to be in circumstances like Paul, on death row, in prison, before you finally wake up and say, maybe I should start talking about Jesus. We see in this passion that his burning desire for all to hear him, that they might know that Jesus is the Son of God who died the death that we should have died, that God loved the world, that he sent Jesus to die on the cross as a substitute, taking our place on the cross. That's the essence of the gospel. And that if we will believe that Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead, and we place our faith and trust in him, then we will be saved, right? Romans 10, 9 through 10 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the gospel that Paul is proclaiming. Is there someone that you know that is not yet saved? Maybe somebody in your family, maybe somebody in your workplace, maybe somebody in, in, uh, lives on the street that you live on, maybe someone that works nearby you. What would it be like if, if you spent the rest of your days and you never shared the gospel or you never bore any sort of a verbal witness to that person? Years ago, I read the story. By the way, I, my glasses keep sliding down. I don't know why. If, that's annoying. I'm sorry. They're annoying me. I shouldn't verbalize that because now you're going to notice every time. But I read a story of a woman named Deanna Kay. And Deanna Kay lived in Hawaii. I don't know her last name. She lived in Hawaii and she lived on a cul-de-sac. And um, for seven or eight years, she had lived on this cul-de-sac. And, and at some point, Deanna... Um, heard the gospel and gave her life to Jesus, was baptized and began to be discipled in a small group. Um, In that small group, uh, the first day she showed up, she saw seven of her neighbors at that same small group. And they were thrilled to hear that Deanna had gotten saved. But she was furious. She, She was so mad. She said, so let me get this straight. For seven years, we did neighborhood block parties together. We shared recipes together. I brought eggs over when you needed eggs. And our kids played in the, in the yard together. And, and for seven years, you knew that if I had died, I would not go to heaven, that I would not have grace or forgiveness or mercy, but that you knew that Jesus had died on the cross for me. And for seven years, and she began to rant that they had neglected to share the gospel with her. And she was not happy with them at all and and ripped on them that she had to hear the gospel somewhere else from someone else, even though God had placed them right there in the same cul-de-sac in the same relationship with them. Who's around you that God has placed you in their life for a purpose? For the sole purpose that they may hear and respond to the gospel. Now listen, you might say, I've heard these kinds of sermons before. You're trying to guilt me and strong arm me into sharing the gospel. Well, maybe, but, but even if I'm not, it's the right thing for you to do as a redeemed child of God to share the gospel with people that God has placed you in their lives. And you may have fought off this obligation for years saying, 
I, maybe I don't know enough, or I'm not trained enough, or isn't that what we pay you for? Or, you know, there may be a long list of reasons why you don't share the gospel with anybody. Maybe you think, well, I'm not living as a good witness, and, and so I don't feel comfortable talking about Jesus. Let me give you a couple of ways to start. The best way for you to start is to begin to pray fervently for someone who's lost around you. Just begin to pray. I used to hear hear it said that a person will never be saved unless they're first a prayer request. Just begin to pray. Every single uh, year we do uh, three to four days of prayer and fasting. And and at every one of those particular days of prayer and fasting, um, we have uh, opportunity set aside for you to pray for people around you that are not yet Christ followers, that have not yet, yet given themselves to Christ. And one of the best motivators for prayer might be just that, what if they got saved and they learned that you were a believer and, they, and you never shared anything with them? How would they respond to you? How would they reply to you? Praying for someone is the best first start. God, give me a heart for them. Give me a heart for the lost. Give me a heart for those who are far from you. A next good step A second step after beginning to pray for someone and their salvation is to love them well by serving them humbly, praying for them fervently, loving them uh, unconditionally, and sharing truth with them uh, constantly, as often as they'll hear it. Sharing truth regularly in love, praying fervently, serving humbly, and loving unconditionally. Those four steps alone, if you, if you were doing those four things, you could see traction in your relationship with people who are not yet believers. A third thing that you can do, and I'll close with this, is just begin to saturate yourself with uh, key evangelism verses. Uh, I've made some copies of this. And these are 40 key verses that, uh, that you can use for evangelism. Uh, uh, four verses about who God is. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above proclaim His handiwork. Six verses about human rebellion and sin. Eight verses about the atonement of Jesus. Fifteen verses that deal with conversion. Seven verses about eternal life. I've made copies of this. I think I only made about 50 or so. Um, and they're on the back, um, out there on the bar top by the... Um, by the offering box and on the other side as well. Pick up one of these and just tuck it in your Bible and begin to saturate your mind with these gospel redemptive passages so that you're able to converse with somebody uh, about these, uh, this gospel message that you've heard. Paul was absolutely passionate about sharing the gospel with the lost, even to the face of his enemy, Herod Agrippa II. It's my hope and prayer that we would be equally consumed with the glory of God and the proclamation of the gospel. Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity that we've had today to to hear your word and to work through these uh, two really long chapters. Uh, But thank you, Lord, that uh, that we were able to read every verse and I pray that you would use your word and Paul's example. Uh, Use it for your glory and for your majesty. It might just be that a few years from now we're, we're baptizing new believers who can trace their salvation back to one of the actions that someone will take as a result of this message. That's my hope and prayer, is that there would be new people who are born into the kingdom of God as a result of your witnesses in this room. Lord Jesus, you have given us great treasures in these jars of clay. 
Use us for your glory and majesty. How dare us who know the gospel in the end be found culpable of those who needed the gospel when we failed to share it passionately. Let us be a people who are passionate about sharing the good news about your salvation as you have told us to be. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.